from my home studio. Welcome to Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations. The Seder is one of the most disruptive practices in Jewish life, but I think most people don't experience it that way. As with many other rituals in Jewish life, it's become routinized. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and today I'll be speaking with Rabbi Michael Strasfeld. We'll be discussing his Avav essay, Why is this Passover Seder different from all other Passover Seders? That essay is adapted from his new book, Judaism Disrupted, a Spiritual Manifesto for the 21st Century. First, I am not conducting this interview on my own. I am privileged once again to be joined by my friend and executive producer, Rabbi Jacob Staub. He and our guest go way back. Uh, in fact, Rabbi Staub was Rabbi Strasfeld's academic advisor at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, although I'm told that Strasfeld apparently placed out of all of uh, Rabbi Jacob's classes, so he didn't actually have him in the classroom. Rabbi Jacob, great to have you back from the West Coast and in the interview room with us today. Um, great to be here in the interview in room, if not on the East Coast, but great to be here. <laughs> A couple of notes. The first is that in 2018 at the Reconstructing Judaism Convention in Philadelphia, I heard Rabbi Michael Strasfeld speak about the future of future of Judaism, and he really seemed to be going places I hadn't heard other rabbis go before. And, and I approached him. I said, "This is this is great stuff. We've we've got to get you on the podcast." Um, at the time, I was co-hosting the Trending Jewish podcast, and you can find those those back episodes on our on our fireside page. And and Rabbi Strasfeld says, wait, I can't go on the podcast yet. I, I've got to write the book first. So I guess that took some time because now uh, five years later, the book is out. It's getting, it's generating uh, real conversation. I mean, I think even in the beginning, he gives one of the most stirring uh, answers to the question, why be Jewish that I've... Uh, that I've that I've heard in in a long time, and 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 he he gets at it a bit in in the show, but for but for that question, I think I think it really uh, comes through clearly in 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 the manuscript, um, and 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 I'm interested in, in in seeing some of the details, but certainly the overall premise that that rabbinic Judaism has sort of lived its course and it's time for something new. I don't know, maybe I'm at a certain point, but it 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 struck a chord with me. Um, so I, I know you can, you can buy it directly from Ben Yehuda Press, uh, Amazon, uh, the other places, Barnes and Noble. We will uh, put some links in the show notes for how you can find the Judaism Disrupted. And it's important to note that Judaism Disrupted's 2023 publication also marks the 50th anniversary of the publication of the first Jewish catalog, which Strasfeld co-edited as a young man immersed in the Jewish counterculture and Havara movement. And uh, as I was preparing for this, my supervisor here at Reconstructing Judaism, Sid Weissman, mentioned the catalog to me, and I had to admit, I really had no idea what she was talking about. Like the library catalogs, uh, the, the clothing catalog, I, I, didn't, I didn't get the reference. And I did a little research, 
and felt silly kind of quickly because this was actually a, a seminal book in American Jewish history, and it sold a whopping 300,000 copies, which, which is a lot for a Jewish reference book, um, almost beyond belief that it sold that much. Uh, so I went to the shelves in the, in the uh, Kaplan Library at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College and got myself a copy and kind of browsed through it. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not meant to be read beginning to end. And it's basically, it, it's hard to explain. It's a bunch of entries written by different people and it offers just practical guidance on 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 how to how to pray in the morning. Um, this was interesting tips for Jewish travel in Europe, Israel, and um, and this, even the Soviet Union. Um, stuff about holidays, life cycles, crafts, cooking. I think there's a section on burial and and, and Jewish funeral practices. Like in short, all kinds of stuff you could look up on the internet in 2023, but would have no way of finding out or very difficult to find out in 1973. Um, and, and, and really, it's all about reclaiming Jewish practice from a non-Orthodox perspective and doing it yourself instead of sitting back in the pews and watching your rabbi or canner essentially do Jewish for you. Now, of course, we have, we have things like Ritual Well, My Jewish Learning, Safaria, and the notion of a fixed, bound, hard copy seems anachronistic, but we, we, we talk about this. We talk about what's changed over the past half century and how Rabbi Strassfeld's thinking has changed, because it, it really has. And as I mentioned earlier, he, he has some pretty radical thoughts about what needs to change for Judaism for it to con- continue to thrive and be relevant. For instance, I'm, I'm, he's, he's pretty much ready, at least he says he's pretty much ready to scrap Saturday morning services, which which... I haven't heard too many rabbis say, and and he's got other ideas for what could replace it. And if you stick with us, we'll we'll get to it. It's part of the conversation. Now, before we start the interview, a reminder: all of the essays discussed on this show are available to read for free on the Evolve website, which is evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. The essays are not required reading for this show but we recommend checking them out. Okay, now it's time for our guest. Michael Strassfeld is Rabbi Emeritus of SAJ in New York City, the the very first Reconstructionist congregation. He also led Anshe Hesed, which is a conservative synagogue also in New York. As we said, he is an editor of the Jewish Catalogs, which actually was a series of books. And with Joy Levitt, he he edited the... um, the Reconstructionist, A Night of, of Questions, a Passover Haggadah. He grew up in a nor- modern Orthodox family in Boston and had attended Yeshiva University for a year before transferring to Brandeis University. He completed all of the work for a PhD in Jewish studies, except the dissertation, and um, he's, he's considered a, fem- a, a seminal thinker in the Reconstructionist movement and beyond. So Rabbi, Rabbi Strassfeld, welcome, uh, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Great, and congratulations on the book and and, and everything else. Thank you. So I've 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 seen your Rabbi Strassfeld, your Evolve essay. You've just had a piece in in Hadassah. Um, managed to to start your new book, Judaism Disrupted, which really got me got me thinking. And it sounds like maybe since your your retirement in in 2015, you've You've been 
thinking a lot about the question of why bother with 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 Judaism, and that's it. That seems like a starting point for the whole Judaism disrupted project. So, in the spirit of the two part question, I guess I'm wondering why is why is the why the most important question, and and can you give us some sense of of uh, what you've come up with as an as an answer to to why be Jewish, why bother with Judaism? Let me try. I, I think probably it's uh, reflecting on my my first book, which was the Jewish Catalog, which was really a a how to, and it, and it was very much. Um, focused on providing pr- practical information for people to live a Jewish life. I think now, 50 years later, in fact, um, the question of I, I think people are struggling with is why? Why should I you know, do this Jewish custom, this Jewish ritual? Why should I be in uh, attend synagogues? It's it's no longer so much how to. It's really why. Or I actually thought about calling the book "Judaism: Why Bother" because I thought it would be a you know catchy title that would catch people's eyes in the bookstore. But it, it just was too negative sounding in the end. Um, and, and I think that's I, th- I think people feel disconnected. Um, from um, from Judaism and and feel doesn't have much to offer except for the things that people like. So many people have a Passover seder, and you know, and other people light Hanukkah candles. But it's often a, a relatively small part of people's life, um, and just. And, Judea- and being Jewish is just one of many multiple identities that increasingly people today in, in America have. There's a, uh, an answer to what the whole book is about that I didn't think of when I, w- I was writing the book. So it didn't make it in- into the book. But I think the sh- short answer is what Judaism is about is... <clears throat> helping people to be a spiritual mensch. And I, I like the, that phrasing, spiritual mensch, of putting together with mensch, which means being a good human being. Um, but they wanted to add a piece to that, which is the spiritual piece, um, which means that, you know, bottom line, feeling that something larger than yourself in the universe and again, I, it doesn't have to be God, or um, but that there is a universe out there that it, it isn't all about me. And I think that sense helps lead people to say, look, you know, I, I'm caught up in anxiety. I'm, I'm stuck in being envious of, of other people, or et cetera, et cetera, all this stuff. And I want to strive to, to be a better person um, and to live in a better space. And so I want to strive to be a spiritual mensch, not just someone who is in caring about other people, but is also um, caring about themselves and caring about 
the planet, which is something larger than myself. Um, and all those things together is what um, Judaism disrupted could be about. This is Jacob. I, um, I'm thinking back 50 years. I'm in rabbinical school. Um, and I was having the why question, like, why keep kosher? You know, I had come from a traditional background. I'd given it all up. And uh, I'm thinking that at least the provisional answer 50 years ago was um, to reinvent, to reconstruct the Jewish community, right? So if we could have an intentional community like Chavurat Shalom or, you know, like, like any of the reconstructions, Chavurot or early congregations, um, then we could somehow um, reconfigure um, what it meant to be ob obligated, responsible to one another, what it would mean to um, have our voices echo, not just musically, but in terms of what our practice was, just a real, um, um, you know, a an authentic Jewish community for the, I don't know, were we in the postmodern age in the 70s? I don't know. But in, in the modern period, um, in the post of And if I had to approach this question now, I would start, I think, with, oh, my God, where do we start? There, There is all of our attempts to build meaningful um, community, you know, in an authentic sense of that term, haven't really worked. And that we're, what we're left with is, why do we do it as individuals? Like occasionally I would um, imagine what it would be like if Dorshe de Minyan Dorshe Derach, the, the worship community that I belong to, we all agreed that we are all going to keep kosher in the following way. I, I know what I would do is resign. I don't want to be part of a community that tells me what to do, right? Even if I agree with what they're saying, I that's not the... So I'm wondering, um, I don't know, can you reflect on on that, on the demographic challenge or whatever it is, the communal challenge? Well, I mean, I think you're right that uh, somehow it didn't work as we have imagined or fantasized in, in some ways, though... Clearly, it worked for, you know, some people. Uh, and it's it, it's interesting that you raise that question about community because in my book, I, I come up with, I came up with 10 core principles that in my re-envisioning of, of Judaism for the 21st century. And then I realized I actually needed to have an 11th, um, even though it's sort of, you know, 10 was the better number. And the 11th was about community. And I feel that um, I agree with you that Judaism should be lived in community. And, and some of that is right, the great ethical principles, love your neighbor as yourself, are, are dealing with the reality of living with other people. Right? So the, the, you know, it would be easy to live in a cave by yourself and love your neighbor because you wouldn't have any. Right, and, and you wouldn't gossip about anybody because there isn't anybody to tell anything to. So, so the ethical life is lived in interaction with with people. But beyond that, 
Judaism is in Judaism, community is really important, whether it's coming together in the, the synagogue or celebrating holidays. The, the image isn't to do that just by yourself. And I, I actually think that community is one way that Judaism has been and still is somewhat counterculture, you know, counter the dominant American culture, which which emphasizes individuality and can lead to narcissism. And uh, I think we're swimming against the stream, but I think it's, it's really an important underlying value. Um, and it is a challenge to uh, have people agree to be in community. Um, and I th- think it will require cultivating uh, a more open attitude towards other people who don't fully agree with you. So uh, if I understand part of the disruption that you're talking about, Judaism disrupted, if I got that right, it's about one of the the, uh, key points is about um, instead of narrowing and being insular and inward facing, we need to be more expansive and outward facing, given the number of people who are in our communities who have, were not born Jewish or haven't even who haven't chosen to be Jewish but are part of the anyway. And so, can you reflect a little bit about how you imagine a Jewish community working without keeping the boundaries up quite so much? I think first, you know, it is in the exclusion, it's in the um, checking your seat seat at the doors that I imagine deep community happening and you're clearly going in the other direction. I just want to hear more about that. Sure. Um, You know, part of my uh, vision is that we're in a time that we need to move from the paradigms of rabbinic Judaism, which, you know, carried Judaism for 2000 years um, to some, something different. And it struck me that the part of the genius of rabbinic Judaism was creating a, a Judaism that was completely portable, that wherever the winds of fortune and misfortune would carry the Jewish people in exile, that you could do the Judaism wherever you wanted. Um, but now we live in a very different world, as the world you're describing, a world living in an open society uh, uh, and the the question of boundaries has become critical. And I think instead of, I mean, Judaism should still be portable, but I think it needs to be permeable. It really needs to be open. And I I think that in itself is a very different paradigm than um, the, the circumstances of rabbinic Judaism where, you know, in the Middle Ages, Jews you know, dealt with their non-Jewish neighbors mostly in commerce. But when it came to culture and religion, they were completely separate. And we don't live in that world anymore. Um, And I I think this is both a challenge and an opportunity. Um, And to, I would say, let's, we don't, no longer need to stand at the boundaries, you know, protecting this precious Judaism that's inside, but that we really want to 
open up to the world. And as you said, it's it's also it's not just the people we work with and and maybe friends, but increasingly members of our family are not Jewish. Uh, and I, I think it's a very different paradigm instead of seeing the world as often threatening or not to be trusted, which I think was the experience of, you know, pre-modern times, is is to see the world as open and that we want to be in that world. We want to live in a world of inclusion, right? And I, I you know, I'm not the first person that points out that, you know, the Torah starts with Genesis. And there's going to be, you know, centuries where there are no Jews. So clearly, you know, Jews aren't essential for the world. That's a sort of humbling <laughs> message. Um, That's you know, the title for a book. <laughs> yeah, people are really about it. Jews aren't saying, oh, I want that book. Got a lot of anti-Semites to buy that book too. So, um, you know, and and our vision isn't that everybody should become Jewish, right? Our our vision is that we think Judaism has meaning and purpose, and and enriches our our lives, and and in and our lives include the the rest of the world. And now that rest of the world has become part of our the intimate parts of our lives, not just, as I said, you know, the neighbor down the street or across town. All right. So you mentioned, you mentioned families, um, that, you know, there's going to be a lot of mixed multitudes, I would imagine gathering around Seder tables pr- pretty soon. Um, you've, you've written about disrupting this, the Passover Seder. So what, what are some of your earliest sketches about what a, what a permeable Passover Seder would look like as opposed to just a portable one. How do we reimagine this or, or continue the reimagining in a way that's not about the separations between people, but, but the unity between people. Right. So on, on one level, you, it, some of it is just making sure the experience is accessible to people. Right. So bottom line, you have not assume that everybody knows you know, what's, what's going on, has been to a Seder before, and no specific terms, uh, et cetera, that you, you kind of assume, well, everybody knows what matzah is. And probably most people know what matzah is. But uh, so some of it is just, it's those signals that, um, that sometimes are subtle and sometimes, you know, hit you over the head of, oh, I'm welcome in this space, or I'm like a stranger you know, at best on the outside and kind of no one's paying attention to the fact that I have no idea what's going on here. Um, so, the, the, and, and you'd want to do that at a Seder, not just non-Jews and Jews, but just in general, the people who are knowledgeable. And, not, and one of the challenges of the Seder is that there are lots, often there are lots of different kinds of people there and they're different ages. And there's a challenge of, kids and how do you balance all that? There's no simple solution, but it is important to think about it ahead of time and to plan a little bit. And whoever is responsible for leading or 
a couple of people leaving to, to, you know, sort of A, have realistic expectations. And, you know, like I really want to have all this, you know, conversation about the Seder text, you know, and, you know, like for an hour. And yeah, but, you know, there's two people that want that and lots of people who are asking the, you know, almost the only question that, you know, gets asked at the Seder is, you know, when do we want to eat? And and I, I think that's the second piece. I, I, I see the Seder as the rabbis made a, a kind of ambitious attempt um, to take the theme of freedom and, and try and engage people at the Seder in, you know, what, what is freedom? How should I still be striving to be free? In what ways am I not free? And, the, you know, the problem as with many other rituals in Jewish life is that they've become, it's become routinized. So the, the four questions were meant to be sample questions. It wasn't meant that every Hebrew school child, you know, for hundreds of years would memorize these, these questions and ask them. And, um, you know, and people notice that the questions are never answered, right? Which shows you that the whole structure wasn't, you know, set up to be so uh, set and, and ritual. So, and it f- feels like, as I say, other rituals that have, are really disconnected from what, the tradition was trying to do. The question, the question is, how do you get people to ask questions? So the, the Seder was ambitious because the rabbis and the Seder text says, you were slaves in Egypt, not your ancestors. You were actually slaves in Egypt. And we're going to try and recreate that experience through the foods you eat. So you're going to eat bitter herbs so you can understand the bitterness of slavery, right? And you're going to drink wine to understand what it's like to be liberated. And obviously that is, that's not a magic formula, but it was, they weren't relying just on the words. They really wanted that experience, even though it's clearly not true, right, on some level, I wasn't a slave in Egypt, um, but they they wanted that to be a way to engage people in the conversation, and and that's probably why there's all these things in the in the traditional seder to provoke the kids to ask questions because they realize that's how you engage people. You engage people in the conversation, and you have to engage the next generation, otherwise you will be the last generation. So the truth is the Seder is one of the most disruptive practices in Jewish life, but I think most people don't experience it that way. Uh, And it's also other things. It's also time for family to get together. I mean, people have, have fond memories. It's the kind of, you could say Thanksgiving is the, Jewish Seder, or the Seder is the Jewish Thanksgiving. Um, so it, it's those things as well, you know, and food and all that. But it it has a very serious purpose that I think too often gets lost 
in a sense like, oh, we're doing these things and we're dipping these things. And, uh, uh, you know, we do it because we've, we've done it for many years, but, you know, we're all just waiting to get to the meal and to the songs. And, and the rest of it is window dressing. Your um, emphasis on questions uh, takes me to a night of questions. Is that the title of the, the Haggadah that you and Joy Love? Which is the one I used? I just don't remember the title. It is. I have yes, five copies is. of it. Um, and I, I wanted, well, part of it was a good title, but part, part of, um, I think what it was about was you actually raised questions in that Haggadah that don't automatically get raised about, about the things we're talking about, about our relationship to Egyptians, right? To, um, in, in angels dancing and getting reprimanded. Um, wonder if you could, um, if you remember that far back, um, recall some of the questions you wanted to highlight in that Haggadah. Well, that, you know, that, I mean, the one you just mentioned is, 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 um, that was like really important. And, and, you know, and the broader question that underlies that is, can there ever be a process that leads to freedom that's not at the expense that one people get free, but it's at the expense of other people. And, you know, that's an ongoing question, uh, you know, and conversations about Israel are, are, are really, you know, somebody's at the heart of that, that, that question, you know, in real life, you know, is, is that possible? And I, I think underlying that, that questioning and the custom of putting your finger in the wine cup when you recite the plagues and taking out a drop because we, we shouldn't, um, you know, we shouldn't be happy. And, and we brought this second Midrash, which says, you know, God's kind of saying, well, maybe I shouldn't drown the Egyptians. And then, you know, one angel comes and, and brings up a, a brick in which uh, an uh, Israelite infant had been entombed, right? And so then God says, okay, you know, they deserve to be punished. And, and you know, and, and, and what we did there was, to give voice to both perspectives, right? They deserve to be punished and, and maybe therefore it's okay to rejoice. And no, they're human beings too. And they must've been innocent Egyptians, you know, who weren't part of the, you know, didn't work in the slave trade and the, and the building, the pyramids or whatever. And we left it that way because we, we were hoping that, um, asking, you know, presenting opposing point, points of view would really encourage conversation because it, if it's just one point of view, then people say, oh, that's nice. And sometimes you'll disagree, but here it was, well, wait a minute, which is, which is right here? And speaking of questions, can you, can you talk about the four new questions you, you, you came up with and, and, and what, what, was, what was behind the intent there? Yeah, so in uh, you know the piece that I wrote for uh, Evolve, I basically talked about what I, what I just said in the in answer to the previous question, and and I thought, well, okay, let me 
let me come up with some new questions. Um, so, um, so one of the questions uh, um, is about the four children, right? Which I think is, at least in, in my Seder, every year there's someone who says, how can you call any child wicked? But the truth is, the wicked slash challenging child is, is still at the Seder. So what does it mean to have these four children who are very different all together at the Seder? And what does that say about uh, how do we sit with people that we disagree with? I don't mean just at the Seder, you know, the, <clears throat> the uncle who's, you know, completely opposite you politically and Basically, you have to not talk about any politics at all, which is increasingly a challenge at, at Seder's. But just in term, in a broader issue of like how we um, in conversation and not conversation, what are the challenges for people who are very different from us? Um, and I think that's become a critical conversation, particularly in the last decade or so. So that's one question one one of the other ones was something i i mentioned that is is there a possibility to have freedom that doesn't come at the expense of of other people um and you know and uh just quickly and there's um some people when they hear the word freedom particularly in the united states think it means oh libertarian like i sh there should be as fewest restrictions as possible, and as much as possible, I should do as much as I want. And how does that fit with people with a different opinion and with, uh, I think, most people's sense of Judaism is, wait, it's in part about obligations. You know, it's stuff that we sh should be doing. And, and more broadly, let's just say, uh, taking the, the story of Passover, shouldn't we be, care about people who are in need, right? It's not like <clears throat> the def, you know, in the rabbi's mind, the definition of the people of Saddam, who are the our typical uh, bad people, is they just, they didn't care about anybody except themselves. They just, they, you know, they didn't want, you know, travelers because they wanted, they, they, they work their way up, and other people should do that. Basically, the kind of familiar refrain in America, and and they and in fact they made it hard for anybody else to work their way up. Um, so, freedom involves obligation to to be caring about other people, not just be caring about yourself. Um, and then I, I just quickly I I highlighted the. Franklin Roosevelt's Four Freedoms, which, you know, beautifully, since four is such an important number in this Seder, I don't think that's why Roosevelt had four freedoms, but um, as, you know, historical and and has uh, freedom from and freedom to. And one, just lastly I'll mention is um, freedom from want for Roosevelt and, and uh, for Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, particularly, wasn't just, oh, like people shouldn't be hungry, but that people had a right to uh, have a living wage and to have medical care. It was a fairly 
you might call it left uh, or radical vision of what freedom um, from want uh, means that there was a these are human rights, not just like we should you know be helpful, we should be caring about people who need no these these are rights that people have right to. And I think that could be also an interesting kind of conversation. If you're enjoying this episode, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or leave a review in Apple Podcasts. These ratings and reviews really help other people find out about the show. We'd like to get to 100 five-star ratings, and we're we're, we're on our way. So, So let's get us over the finish line. Please help us out if you have a moment. Really appreciate it. Okay, thanks. And now back to our conversation with Rabbi Michael Strassfeld. I'm struck, um, I, I don't know, it, this feels historic, 50 years, uh, Jewish catalog, new book with new disruption. And I wonder if there's anything to, that you'd like to say about where the impetus to um, think things from scratch are. I, I, Jewish catalog was very radical. It doesn't seem so anymore in assuming that people could do things for themselves. Oh my God. Right. Um, right. And, um, and you're, you know, you, I, I know a little bit about your back, your Orthodox background and your rabbinic heritage. Um, where do you think your impetus to every 50 years or so <laughs> turn things upside down comes from? I think some, I mean, to be candid, I think some of it is, is like personality. Like I don't, I don't like doing the same things over and over again. I think looking at the world, I, I, I'll, I'll tell a, a story that just happened uh, uh, a few months ago. I was at, uh, um, my wife Joy and I were invited to be at a panel of Jewish artists in a gallery in Soho here in New York. And there they were like six or seven artists, big panel, and they were introducing themselves at the beginning. And then one of them said, you know, here's the kind of art I'm doing, and I consider myself a mediocre Jew. And then the, the gallery owner who spoke next said, I think I'm a bad Jew. And it was clear from the conversation that what they meant by that was the good Jews are the people that go to synagogue, you know, who do all the, those Jewish rituals, which they either didn't know anything about, you know, felt like going to a synagogue would be like going to a foreign country, or they didn't have any interest in. And that fundamentally, to me, feels like that's the problem. That if you think what Judaism is about is only uh, what I call the Jewishly Jewish things, that only the things that Jews only Jews do, that's a really limited notion of Judaism. And it's not surprising then that you know someone who would, one of these people would go to a synagogue and they wouldn't have any idea what's going on, and they're sitting there for three hours. Uh, you know, with a text that even if they're reading in English is like, okay, the sun and moon praise God. I'm, that's not bad, but why do I care about that? Like, and it's 
And we just said something like that, you know, four pages before, like what's going, you know, right? So they've, I think there are a lot of people that feel disconnected and feel that there's not much there for them and feel, and I kind of mentioned this already, I think experience these rituals as disconnected from anything that they might care about. Um, and so I think there's a great treasure in Judaism and that I, I, you know, it's a part of what I'm trying to do with the rituals is to reconstruct them, to use that language, so that they're connected to um, to meaning. And it, 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 they're basically awareness practices. For me, it's a, a subtle but fundamental shift to say ritual is is awareness practice it's awareness to, that there's something larger than myself in the universe some people call that god awareness like i really want to create a caring society and i want to participate in, in in that work and i also think about my life and and the parts of my character that I'm unhappy about and and the parts and qualities that I would like to cultivate. I'd like to be more generous. I'd like to be less angry, whatever it is. And each of us has those things. And if Judaism has wisdom and practices that help me do those things, then I think people are going to want to be part of it. I, I started out asking about your answer to why be we Jewish. There's a lot of ways I could take this question, but since we mentioned the the catalog, um, there, there's no there's there's no essay by Michael Strassfeld in the catalog. Why why be Jewish? But I'm wondering if your if your answer in 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 2023 would be very different from what it was in in 1973. I think what's would be different. Uh, what is different today? is uh, the emphasis on spirituality. I, I don't, it wasn't as though we didn't know there was such a thing as spirituality back in the, in the, the late 60s and the early 70s. But I, I think there has been much of a, a growth and a deepening of spirituality uh, in American religion and you know, and, and particularly in uh, in uh, in Judaism, it's, so such things as the Institute for Jewish Spirituality didn't exist, or any, or even an earlier form of that. And in some ways, it's the book is looking at Judaism through the lenses of Jewish spirituality. So that becomes very much uh, the language, and I think the other thing that there's more of now is this this inner qualities that um, uh, and you know that can be connected to spirituality or it c- could be connected to um, things like musar, which is a Jewish focus on on, on improving your your inner qualities. And I, I think um, both those things have framed Judaism in. Uh, uh, in a somewhat different manner. Um, I feel compelled to 
note that though we didn't have maybe the language that we now have from 25 years of Institute for Jewish Spirituality work, um, there was something in the catalog and in the Chavura movement that was clearly and uniquely, not uniquely, but um, preeminently spiritual. To listen to Michael Strasfeld lead a Kabbalah Shabbat service was a spiritual experience. Um, so I think um, you should take a little bit more credit and, <laughs> and point to the continuity a little bit more. I wanted to ask you about, should I be listening to you talk about what's needed in the Jewish world, what's needed in the synagogue or outside of the synagogue as a result of what worked pretty well for you as a pulpit rabbi at, at the Society for the Advancement of Judaism? Or should I be hearing it as stuff that didn't work so well? I mean, is, is this... Is this a victory lap or? A <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I mean, I would say, you know, I've learned, I hope I learned a lot in being a congregational rabbi. Um, but in part, I'm writing the, the book because I think liberal Judaism is in trouble. Uh, I think numbers are decreasing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and there are lots of, um, things that are happening that have uh, energy and are, are um, and are you know good and getting people involved in a whole variety of ways. So you know the picture is always <clears throat> complicated, but I think the synagogue in particular is in trouble. Um, and again, broadly, there's some synagogues that are doing fabulously, and um, but looking at the broad picture. And one of the places that um, um, I, I talk about, which I th think some people will be unhappy with in the book, is the fact that, um, and I kind of alluded to it earlier, that I think traditional services, that is, services as they're done in most synagogues of whatever denomination, um, don't work for most people. Um, I mean... Part of the problem is they work for the people that come. Um, and so as a congregational rabbi, whenever you try and change things in those services, the people there say, well, but we like it. Why are you trying to change it? You know, for the mythical people who will come to the new kind of services and, you know, and maybe we'll stop coming. So, um, so partly that's to say to you, Jacob, like the truth is, you know, one of the things I learned was, change in um, synagogues is is challenging and difficult um, but I, I I you know say straight out in the book I just don't think the services the way they're done I alluded to this earlier I think many people ju just experience the you know again well, why are we praising you know God again and again I think you could take the pages of the prayer book, throw them up in the air, collect them, and say them in that order, and it would make as much sense to most people. The ch challenge uh, would be to create an alternate experience that uh, I think should happen on a Shabbat morning, 
and should have uh, a spiritual worship piece to it and a study piece to it. Um, but um, that's not uh, tied to the traditional liturgy, no matter how much of that or uh, how little of that is said. In that sense, I think it's we need a paradigm shift you know, similar to the, when the, the second temple was destroyed and the sacrificial cult was ended and the priest, etc. And the rabbi said, okay, we're going to do prayer instead. And you can bet that there were plenty of people at that time who say, you can't do prayer instead. You have to bring a sacrifice. Prayer doesn't work. We know the sacrifices work. What kind of crazy person are you? Um, you know, and... Partly, history didn't allow that conversation to go on for very long. But I think we're we're at a that kind of moment again, where um, where there needs some you know some things need to be reinterpreted, but some things need to be um, you know radically transformed um, to the the world that we're living in. I'm not talking about like. COVID the last couple of years, politics in the last couple of years, I think this has been unfolding in the modern period. And, uh, and, and in some ways, the paradigms of rabbinic Judaism, um, which kind of worked great in the Middle Ages, or looked like they worked great in the Middle Ages, um, you know, the modern world is a very different world, you know, and that partly this Permeable, I think, is the most obvious. Um, but there's a, a, a bunch of, of fundamental changes. Um, and Judaism or some of the denominations have adapted to those changes, but uh, I think there's more required. I mean, this is this definitely sounds... Sounds, sounds radical. You didn't say it in like a newsflash kind of way, but... but... I mean, synagogues without Shabbat services are like as un seem as unimaginable as 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 Judaism without you know without sacrifices before what sixty seven A D or A D C E. Um, how how do you how do we begin to even imagine what that looks like? Do do communities just start experimenting? Do we need do we need a a new gathering of rabbinic leaders like? Yavne after the disruption of the temple like how do we it just it just sounds like thinking about synagogue without services it just sounds like like that's a nothing that's a void like what what could as I said I think it's it's a a very challenging process Um, and um, and you know I I affected some changes in the in the synagogues I was the rabbi of but but, you know, not the level of change that I'm talking about. Um, so so I, I, I don't want to underestimate the challenges here. But the flip side of that is, I think if we don't, then fewer and fewer people will participate. I, I, I think some of it would be to, to offer alternatives to... Uh, and some synagogues have been doing this already, you know. In other words, I, for instance, um, 
you know, as I say, a lot of Jews feel uncomfortable, like, I don't know what, why I'm praying. I don't believe God's going to give me anything. And I think that's what prayer means. So I, I don't get what I'm doing here. But if you say, oh, let's study th some things, and people say, study, I know how to study. I may not know how to study Talmud, but like, I know what it means to study a, a text. I, you know, I've done that in university, whatever. So instead of, you know, instead of having like a study before services or after services, what about a parallel to the services? There was some people went in the room and they studied. I think ideally people should feel connected to to what's happening in the service. Um, and uh, and I think that's very difficult in the services we have. I, for, I'll finish with this. For a number of years I did a, uh, while I was still in congregation, I, I did a, <clears throat> a once a month healing service with Debbie Friedman of Blessed Memory, the uh, <clears throat> musician. And we created the service because there is no such thing as a traditional uh, healing service. And, and we struggled with what it would mean. And, and in the end, we just, it was a similar thing. We put together some readings. We put together music, some Debbie's music, some Hasidic things. And each service was on a different theme, but it wasn't on the theme of illness. It was brokenness and wholeness. It was hope, lack of hope. Um, so they were all like what I would say spiritual themes related to the experience. And everybody who was there, like they got why, why we were saying that, why there was this reading. There wasn't like I had to get up and give a five-minute explanation of how you could understand this so it was relevant. And clearly it was also the people that came were either people who were sick or people who were loved ones of people who were sick, or people who resonated with those themes of brokenness and wholeness, even though they weren't sick, they, that was their spiritual experience. And so everything, they didn't have, there was nothing that was happening that they sort of said, I don't, I like that melody, but I don't know why we were singing it. Or, you know, what was that reading? I, I don't know, you know. Um, and that was a particular opportunity, but it, you know, it demonstrated that um, it could be done. You know, the, we were having Friday night service. It was the Friday night after 9-11. And being in New York, in Manhattan, it, this was needless to say, you know, on everybody's mind, you know, synagogues in the Upper West Side, but you could see the smoke from downtown and you could, you know, there were ashes in the in the air and, and stuff like that. And so we were having our Friday night service and we came to Lakhadodi, <clears throat> the central hymn of, of of the Friday night service. And I said to people, take a look at the stanzas which talk about a a, a city that's uh, in in ruins and broken and um, and this prayer that we had sung, <clears throat> you know, every Friday night suddenly had um, a different meaning. And, and I wondered, um, while I'm sure, you know, probably every rabbi in America said something at their that Friday night service uh, about 9-11, um, 
whether there were other rabbis who pointed out the words of the Chadodi. And, and I, and I, this isn't to, isn't to toot my horn, but it is, um, it's because I think if the liturgy doesn't speak to us, um, then there's something really wrong. Um, and I, I don't know what the point is of, of, of saying it. And, you know, I, I, and that, that's just one example. You know, I've had a couple experiences like that where I've, I, I felt like, well, but there's something right there in the liturgy that feels related. You know, it, I mean, I'm not saying the fact that it was in, and the Chaudodi prayer made people feel better about the, the tragedy, but it just felt, oh, yes, this is acknowledging what's going on. And here I'm saying these words, and I'm sitting in a ruined city, you know, and it has this personal connection to my, my experience. The liturgy and life should intersect rather than um, disconnect. Maybe this is maybe this is the the last question. Although I feel like I, I've 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 got um a hundred more. I, I I jotted down. We won't we won't get to today. Um, we we we've talked about a little bit about the Havara movement and 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 how that led to, among other things, the the first Jewish catalog. And and I know you've you've said to us um, that that was. You know, it was a countercultural movement. It was in some ways anti anti rabbinic, or at least you know rabbinic ambivalent. Then you be, then you became a rabbi. Um, so, I guess I'm wondering, having having gone through this arc, where where do you see the role of of rabbis in in the disruption of Judaism and the reimagining of Judaism? Is it? I guess I'll stop. I'll stop there. Uh, you know, looking back, I think the uh... The ambivalent about uh, rabbis was <clears throat> unfortunate in the in the Chavarah movement. I mean, I think some of it was reaction against suburban synagogues, where <clears throat> you know, which were very passive, and the rabbi was, you know, the rabbi was being Jewish, and everybody else was sitting there and at most participating in a responsive reading. Um, so some of that was coming from there, but I, I think there's a real place for someone whose job it is is to <clears throat> teach Judaism to be a spiritual presence, um, to comfort people, uh, and I, I think one of the important things for me as a as a rabbi was a sense that I wasn't just a rabbi for the members of my congregation. Like I, I was a rabbi for Jews, right? <clears throat> and so the, the people who weren't coming to my synagogue were, you know, on some level, you know, part of my bailiwick, by parsonage, by, by concern, right? And uh, it didn't mean I spent a lot of time, you know, stopping people on the street and saying, are you Jewish, are you Jewish? Uh, but it was a balance to the members of the synagogue who were mostly concerned about the synagogue and, and their lives, right? So there's a kind of 
broader perspective that I think is important to be in dialogue with legitimate, you know, desires and, and, and wants and perspective of, of the members of the congregation. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, it's challenging for a rabbi to be a disruptor in their synagogue, um, but, you know, and you'd have to, you know, do it wisely and, um, and not just, you know, come in and say, okay, we're, this is what we're doing. I'm the rabbi and I said, you know, because <clears throat> most such people get fired. Um, but, <laughs> you know, but it's, I, I think there's, there's a place for spiritual leadership. And I, and in the Jewish community, that is rabbi and, and maybe cantor, um, you know, some of this, the, the ambivalent rabbinate thing had to do with, again, people's personal by, you know, biographies or people at Chabrat Shalom who had gone to the Jewish Theological Seminary and didn't have such a great experience there. Um, and some of the Chabrat was a reaction to that. Um, and, and the truth was uh, a bunch of people at Chabrat Shalom became Jewish academics. And... Um, and it was part of the time of the beginning of the expansion of Jewish studies and campuses. But, um, you know, and Jewish academics can be also spiritual teachers, but the truth is the, the academia, that's not how you're supposed to teach in academia. You know, this is supposed to be academic and impartial. And, um, and um, so it's not a perfect match. Um, though there certainly are plenty of, of Jewish teachers who can teach academically and then in a different setting teach more from a, let's go just call it a spiritual perspective. So the bottom line is I think rabbis are important. Rabbi Strasfeld, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Um, this was a wonderful interview. Congratulations on, on completing the book on the 50th anniversary of, of, of your first book. Um, thanks. Thanks for being here. It's just a pleasure always to talk to you and learn from you, Michael. Um, thanks so much for joining us. No, thanks. Thanks. This was really good. It's a really good conversation. So what'd you think of today's episode? We want to hear from you. Evolve is about curating meaningful conversations, and that includes you. Send me your questions, comments, feedback, whatever you got. You can reach me at bschwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. I promise we'll be back soon with a brand new episode. Evolve Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Walks. Our theme song, Ilufinu, is by Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism, I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and I will see you next time.